How y'all doing? That's loud. That's good. Keep it up. I'm going to blow these people away. Don't turn it down. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. I hope you had a very nice Bible class. You didn't play hooky. If you did, that's okay. I'm happy to see you. Very, very happy to see all these good faces in the audience today. My name's Michael. Nice to meet you to some of you. Michael Bowen. My wife is Chris. She sat there in first service where you are, Mr. Tucker. Hope she kept that seat warm for you. Uh, next to her was my son, Cannon, and my daughter, Austin, or Juju. We are your missionaries to Laos, that little country in Southeast Asia. Been there for almost five years. Can you believe it? That's going to come as a shock to some of you. It came as a shock to me that we've been over there already for so long. Those of you who are high school seniors when we came five years ago, now you done graduated. Look at you. Well, most of you. I guess. I shouldn't take that for granted if you took the fifth, the bonus year. Okay. This time is supposed to be reserved for a sermon, but it'd be wrong. It'd be wrong of me not to stand up here and say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you very much um, for the generosity that this church has shown our family through the years. We thank you. We've never doubted that you cared for us. We never doubted that you loved us, you remembered us, and you were praying for us and for loud people. That's something we can't say thank you enough about. Thank you. It's always good for me to be back here at the West 7th Church where I grew up. Feels good coming back in these pews, seeing old familiar faces and new ones. It's all very nice. There have been some things that have changed, some things that have stayed the same. I noticed Jim Robinson got new glasses in first service, right? But Brother Alsop still has his beard, right? So some things change, some things stay the same. I also like coming back to Columbia, which you remember from service, service, I'm going here again. Columbia, greatest town on God's earth, as we read in Matthew chapter 21, verse 7. Verily, Jesus was going into Jerusalem. This was the week of his crucifixion. It was day one. He had not yet turned over tables and made a whip of cords. He went into Jesus into Jerusalem, not on foot, but fulfill, to fulfill all scripture, specifically Zechariah chapter 5. He went in on the back of an animal, Taft. But this passage has confused scholars for millennia because it's very confusing in verse 7 of chapter 21 where it reads, They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit upon. Friends, have you ever seen someone ride two animals at once? What was he doing? Was he standing one foot on each animal? You can see why this is confusing. Maybe he spread out his legs very wide and he rode both of them at the same time. No, because then instead of saying Hosanna, they'd be saying, you are weird. <laughs> Friends, there's only one way. You know it. There's only one way you can ride a donkey and a horse at the same time. Friends, he was on a mule. <laughs> he was on a mule, Jesus. Columbia, greatest town in the world. Okay, I'm supposed to do a sermon and y'all are hungry. So that's enough silliness. I do want you to smile uh, during this sermon, just like during He Has Made Me Glad. But not from laughter. I'm not going to tell any more jokes. But I do want you to be smiling from joy 
okay? Don't force it. God's going to give you a gift of joy from this passage today, as long as I can stay out of the way. We are in Luke chapter 8. Hope you enjoy my PowerPoint. It's only one slide. It's not very complicated. Okay? You, don't have, you can put the clicker down. Okay? We are going to be in Luke chapter 8. If you get bored, you can look at that tree. The story is, I was going to talk about Nicodemus. So I got that sycamore tree. I'm not sure it's really a sycamore or not. We're not talking about Nicodemus, but I liked that. Or not talking about Zacchaeus, but I like that picture. Okay, we're in Luke chapter 8. We're going to be looking at a passage that is a story that's couched inside another story. A very interesting literary device that's used by three gospel writers. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this story the same way. The big story on the outside is the story of Jairus, the nobleman, the leader of the synagogue, whose daughter is raised from the dead. And the middle story is the story about the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years that Jesus healed. Now, the story on the outside gets all the attention, I think, because Jairus was maybe a more important person. That story gets the most attention because maybe that miracle, raising someone from the dead, was more impressive than just healing somebody's bodily affliction. Maybe it's because the Jairus story is the beginning and the end of the section of Scripture. I'm not sure, but Jairus gets all the glory in his daughter being raised from the dead. But I want us to look at that middle story a little bit. Before we can, I need to summarize what happened with Jairus. Jesus... I'll describe it like this. Jesus was uh, in the region of the Gerizines, wherever that is. And he had just uh, delivered this man who had the demons, lots of demons, called Legion. You remember that. He had just done that act of deliverance, and now he had moved back into Galilee with the disciples. He was returning there, and all the people were waiting for them. There was a big crowd, the Bible says, gathered to receive them. When he came in, it says that the crowds were so big that they were pressing in and jostling on Jesus. And one man in particular came up to him at some point named Jairus. He was a nobleman and a leader in the synagogue. In other words, he was very important in the culture. He was, you know, the top of the society's pecking order. He was an important fellow and a noble person. He comes up to Jesus and says, I have a favor I need to ask. My daughter's very sick, 12-year-old, my only child, my beloved child. Can you come to my house? If you touch her, she'll be healed. Jesus says, sure. He starts walking. He gets interrupted on the trip through the crowd, but eventually he gets there. He finds that the girl has already died. They say, don't bother the rabbi anymore. She's already passed. Jesus says, Jairus, don't worry. It's going to be all right. He takes Peter, James, and John inside. You remember the mourners are, are crying because she's died, and Jesus says, no, she's not dead. She's just sleeping, and they start laughing, right? But Jesus says, child, get up, takes her hand. She stands up. She's alive. She's very hungry. Don't know why. It's a good story. I'm rushing through it because you're hungry. But that's just to give you the context for the really good story on the inside. Okay, so keep that big story in the back of your mind while we zoom on, zoom in on the space in the middle. The story about this woman that Jesus meets on the way. I'm going to read to you from Luke chapter 8. This is starting in verse 42 and a half. I'll read it. You just sit there and listen. Relax. Look at the tree. As Jesus went on his way to Jairus' house, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She'd spent all she had on doctors, but no one could heal her. She came up behind Jesus and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. 
When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. In other words, we don't know who touched you. Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing she could hide no more, came trembling and fell at Jesus' feet. And there in the presence of that crowd, she explained why she had touched him and that she had been instantly healed. Then Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Now that is just a tremendous story. He healed that woman. Diggity D. Let's move on to chapter 9. No, we can't move to chapter 9 yet. We need to dig in a little bit more to this story. Why is it so important that it would be repeated in three of the four Gospels? Think about they've got thousands of stories and things that they heard Jesus say, saw him do, all these miracles. Why do three out of the four Gospel writers think that this story is so important to keep in the Bible so that 2,000 years later we'll be hearing sermons about it. Why is it so important that they all included this special story? On the surface, it looks like just another miracle that Jesus performed, showing that Jesus has power, Jesus is compassionate, and it's important to have faith. And maybe that could be our short sermon and we could all stand and sing. Right? But don't stand and sing, we're not done. No, we need to dig deeper and find out why this story is so meaningful to us. And like I said before, I think when we read it again, and I'm going to wax eloquent, God's going to give you a gift from this scripture, okay? I believe that God is going to bless you with a gift from this passage today. If you hang in with me. I'm going to read it again, this time in little bits. And I want you guys to please, please... First service did a good job. Don't let them outshine you. Use your imagination. Open up your brain. Like this. Open it up. Massage your brain around a little bit. Let the blood flow out of your fingers and toes and right up into your head. All that energy that you're using to digest breakfast, stop using that energy on your breakfast. Use it on your brain head. I know you got an imagination. Pull it out. Let's use it. Blow the dust off. Okay, I'm going to read slowly. And I would like you to please try to picture yourself there on that dusty road in Galilee. Okay? Verse 42. Jesus was on his way to Jairus' house. I'm going to stop there. I want you to see Jesus. Have you got Jesus? It can be any Jesus you want. Tall Jesus, short Jesus. He can have, I recommend brown hair, but you can make him a ginger if you want. Okay, do whatever you want. Make sure he's your Jesus. Put him in your brain. Next, I want you to think about Jairus. Remember that Jairus is there. Okay, he's going to be older than Jesus. He's a nobleman. He's a synagogue leader, so he's kind of an important person. To me, he's got to have a beard. Okay, I don't know. You make your own Jairus. Do what you want, but I think he had a beard. I think it was a very good beard. Okay, now don't just see him as a blank canvas, just a human. Okay, this is a real person who had emotions. Think about what he was going through. Think about what he was feeling. His only daughter, 12-year-old daughter, very, very sick. In fact, she's going to die in just a few minutes. Okay, he's got maybe relief on his face that, yes, I found Jesus. There's, there, maybe there's hope for my girl. Okay, but he's also, he's anxious. He's afraid. He's worried that they're not going to get there in time. Maybe if you're seeing this in your brain, I hope you are, maybe Jairus is kind of leading Jesus and like he keeps going faster and looks back and, man, come on, come on, come on. We got to go. 
This is time sensitive. Okay, I want you to see Jairus. Now I want you to don't forget about the disciples because all 12 of those goons are with them. So I want you to imagine those fellas. Let's read on. The crowds almost crushed him. I guess that's verse 43. All right. So now we have more characters in the play. Lots of people crowding in. I want you to think about times that you've been in a big crowd and how that feels. Maybe you're at Murray County Park, County Fair. Is it still at Murray County Park? I don't think so. You just got a funnel cake. You're trying to get back to your table. Everybody's crowd. Everybody's going this way. You're going that way. I want you to remember how that feels. People pushing in on you, okay? Think about the dust that's going up in your nose. Think about that hot sun that's baking down on your head, makes the top of your head hot, okay? You're surrounded by people. This is 2,000 years before deodorant. I want you to smell them, all right? Smell them, folks. I want you to go there, okay? Are you there? Okay, who's going to come in next? A woman. A woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She'd spent all she had on doctors, but no one could heal her. Okay, here's a new character for the movie in your head. We've got a lady. Now, because everybody from Galilee probably had dark hair, dark eyes, dark skin, to make her stand out, let's make her blonde. Okay, go back in your little movie palace. Now, let's make her blonde. Say she's about 35 years old, but she probably looks older because remember, there's no makeup has been invented, right? It's the real you. She's probably looking maybe 40 or 45 because she's been sick for 12 years. Maybe her clothes are not very good. She's a little bit dirty. Okay, have you got her in your mind? Now let's kind of go inside her and try to understand where she's coming from a little bit more. We know a little bit about her, and I would say that she probably was a person who came from means. She was a person who had wealth maybe in a former life because it says that when she became sick, she had money to spend. She went to the doctors, fix me, fix me, fix me, spent everything that she had on those doctors. So she had to have had some money. Maybe she had a husband. Maybe she had a family. But all that's gone now. I want you to see her. I want you to see her. All that stuff's gone now. And in the meantime, she has been suffering. And not just from her illness, but... The Mark version of this story says that she had suffered greatly under the hands of the doctors. It doesn't take much imagination to think about how horrible that must have been. Just 150 years ago, we were putting leeches on people to heal them. And in the 1500s, according to Google, we were drilling holes in people's heads to cure their migraines. Okay? So think 2,000 years ago, what terrible things they must have tried on this poor woman. She'd suffered a lot. But here's the part that maybe we don't catch because we're, first, we're 21st century Americans. But the first century people who are reading Luke would have seen this right away. This woman is unclean. She is ceremonially unclean. According to the law, if you're bleeding, you're unclean. And you're going to be unclean until seven days after the blood stops. This woman has been bleeding for 12 years. That means that 12 years, she's never been allowed to touch anyone. No one's been allowed to touch her. No one's given her a kiss. No one's given her a hug. 12 years. Maybe this is worse. Maybe this is not as bad. I don't, to me, it seems worse. But by being unclean, everything that she touched became dirty. 
Everything that she touched was unclean. If she sat in a chair, nobody else could sit in that chair. If she put on a cloak, that cloak was ruined. No one else could touch that cloak. If everything you touch becomes filthy to everyone, how is that going to make you feel? Are you going to feel filthy? She felt filthy. Okay, this is the way that people saw her. And maybe more importantly, this is the way she saw herself. I'm filthy. And I can't get clean. So, the other thing that our first century readers would have really noticed right off the bat was what she's doing pressing through this crowd is highly illegal. She's, gonna, she's an unclean person. She knows that she's ceremonially unclean, and yet she's going into a crowd where people are pressing in. You can't avoid touching folks. And she's doing it knowing full well that she's making them unclean. It's illegal. You can't do it. And maybe even more serious, if you were to touch a rabbi, someone of that high status, then that's a capital offense. She could be stoned for this. So why does a woman risk her life Pushing into that crowd. Why does a woman spend all of her money trying to fix a disease that wasn't killing her? She'd been living with it for 12 years. She wasn't going to die from it. Why did she spend all of her money? Why did she risk her life to go out there and touch Jesus? That's because she was more than sick. Her life was ruined. She was an outcast. Completely on the outside. Worse than a leper. At least the lepers have each other. She had no one. She was nobody to anyone. Just unclean, unworthy, dirty, and on the outside. Plus, everybody would have thought that she was a bad, bad sinner. We know about the first century, the views on sin and how it was connected to misfortune. Remember the man born blind and people said, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? So not only was she unclean, but everybody thought of her as someone who deserved it. She sinned in some way or her parents sinned in some way. And remember, it wasn't just the people thinking that. She thought that about herself. Can you see her? I want you to look at her. I want you to see her. Here's what happens next. She came up behind Jesus and touched the edge of his cloak. All right, remember that Jairus, when Jairus came to Jesus, he's up here, right? He's got the high status. He's a nobleman, leader in the synagogue. He can walk right up to Jesus and stand toe-to-toe with him and say, Rabbi, can you do me a favor? Okay? But this woman is nobody. She's nothing. She's the lowest. She can't walk up to Jesus. She doesn't want to. She doesn't feel worthy to. To her, she's like, all I can hope to do is to come up behind and reach out and touch the part of his cloak that drags on the ground. All right? Immediately, the bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus says. Disciples all deny it. Wasn't me, Jesus. Not me. Wasn't me, Jesus. That's how they sound, isn't it? Peter said, Master, people are crowding in. We don't know who touched you. Jesus said, Somebody did. I felt the power go out. And then the woman, seeing that she could hide no longer, came trembling and fell at Jesus' feet. No wonder she was trembling either for joy that she was finally cured or, or fear that she'd been found out and she had committed this capital crime. Maybe she believed that she was about to get stoned. In the presence of all the people, the woman told why she had touched Jesus and how she had been instantly healed. Imagine how brave she must have been to stand there. It wasn't a testimony. 
It wasn't coming up and saying, y'all, I want to tell y'all how Jesus delivered me and glory to God. It wasn't that. This is a confession. Imagine the crowd listening on. They're not saying, oh, good for you, girl. I'm glad you got well. Okay, they're not doing that. What they're doing is, what? You're unclean? Did you touch me? Am I going to have to go stop going to the temple? Am I going to have to burn these clothes? Am I going to have to go make a sacrifice? I don't know if she touched me or not. Oh, I hope she gets what's coming because she, she touched all of us and made all of us unclean and she thinks she's going to go talk to that rabbi? No, they weren't proud and happy for her. They were like, good grief, I hope that Jesus tells her to go to the pit so we can pick up these rocks and smash her. All right? Took some courage, I think. The people are wondering what Jesus is going to do. You can imagine how the crowd is responding. Maybe you can even imagine how Jairus is responding. He's a nice guy. He's a good man, a noble person. But you have to wonder if even he is thinking things like, you know, Jesus, my daughter, over here, she's dying. We really, we really, we really need to go. You know, I've done everything right. I'm good. Shouldn't you be coming to help me instead of that woman who obviously doesn't have it together? Right? Can you see it? Everybody's wondering what Jesus is going to do. Is he going to say, let's stone her? Is he going to say, let's put her on trial? No. Jesus looks at her and in Mark it says he sees her. And he says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. He doesn't call her sinner or unclean, lawbreaker. He shocks the crowd. He shocks Jairus. He probably even shocks his disciples when he says, no, you're my girl. You belong here. I'm glad you touched me. I'm glad you came. I've been waiting for you. You belong here. And there in front of that crowd, he honors her and honors her faith. This is my daughter, and her faith is great. So now this woman who was the lowest in the crowd has now been lifted way up here because the great rabbi has elevated her so high. Isn't that a great story? Isn't that a great story? Should we pack it up and go home? Not yet. It's a wonderful story, but somebody says, Oh, Mike! Oh, Mike, up there on the stage. That's a beautiful blue tie. And to you, I say, yes, it is beautiful. I bought it yesterday at Coles. And you say, oh, Mike, you could have just done that short sermon from before. Jesus is powerful. Jesus is compassionate. People need to have faith. And yes, I could, we could have done that, okay? And we could stop there now. But we have to go a little bit deeper because although those things are true and important and real and good takeaways from this story, there's another, there's another piece of the gospel underneath it. There's more good news. There's a gift for all of us that's laying underneath it. It's the same message you can find when you read about Zacchaeus and the tree. The same one you can find if you read about Jesus forgiving and pardoning this adulterous woman. The same one you can read when you read about Jesus welcoming children, curing Bartimaeus, looking at this uh, prostitute who's washing his feet with her tears and publicly honoring her in front of all these Pharisees. The woman's problem was not that she was bleeding. 
Her problem was the effects of, those, of being unclean. Her problem was that she was an outcast. Her problem was that she was unwelcome. Her problem was that she was less than. Her problem was that she was on the outside. That's not just how they saw her, but that's how she saw herself. And I'm here to tell you, you don't have to bleed for 12 years to feel that way. You don't have to be ceremonially unclean to feel unworthy, to feel less than, to feel like you don't belong. Three days ago, Thursday, Thursday it was, we flew in, landed in Atlanta, and we received generous hospitality from a lady who's not been to church for 20 years. 20 years ago-ish, when her children were four years old and newborn, her husband left for someone else. And the last time she went to church was soon after their separation. And she came up the stairs with a baby in each arm, a diaper bag falling off of one shoulder, and she couldn't get the foyer doors open. And people were watching her. Just a few feet away, no one helped her. No one spoke to her. Never been to church since. Do you think that woman felt ashamed? Do you think she felt unwelcome, unworthy, like she didn't belong? She hadn't been bleeding for 12 years. She wasn't unclean, but she still felt that way. And it's true even for us sometimes, you know, we can accept that Jesus has, has paid for our forgiveness. Like we can accept that we're no longer guilty. We can accept that when we die and go to judgment, Jesus is going to stand in our spot and thanks to the gospel and the good news, my sins aren't going to matter at judgment. We can accept that, but we still kind of like to hold on to the shame. Say, yeah, I'm forgiven, but I'm still bad. I'm still a sinner. I'm still unworthy. Satan can bring to mind your sins and your problems and your faults and your brokenness and he can say, you know, who are you to think you can pray? Who are you to think you can minister? Who are you? You're not like these other people. You're, you're messed up. You don't have to bleed 12 years to feel unworthy and on the outside. But the good news in the text is good news for the lady and it's really good news for all of us too. Because even though the crowd was saying, no, she doesn't deserve to come in your presence, Jesus. The crowd was saying, she's a sinner. She's dirty. She's unclean. She can't be here. Even though the woman is saying, I'm a sinner. I'm dirty. I'm unclean. I'm unworthy. I'm not worthy to come to Jesus. Even though they were thinking those things, Jesus was saying, you're my daughter. You're mine. You belong here. I'm glad you came. You're in the right place. You belong with me. That's good news. The good news for us is that the gospel is more than just forgiveness of sins. The Bible says that the gospel is bigger than that, you know. According to the Bible, it says that because of Jesus, we went from guilty to innocent. We went from orphaned to adopted, from lost to found. 
Rejected to accepted. From outcast to belonging. Stranger to citizen. From unknown to precious beloved child. There are two ways that you can respond to this passage. Maybe more. I'm sure there are more. But I'm going to walk you through two. I know we're running late, but I came 8,000 miles to preach this sermon. So you're going to sit there and be hungry. No, it'll be just a few minutes. The first thing that you can do to respond to this sermon is to accept that new status that Jesus and God want to give you, that they've already given you, that we sometimes forget about, that all those titles that might apply to you don't apply. The only one that does is precious child. I was evangelizing in Laos two weeks ago. I was praying that day that God would help me to know him more, that he would lead me to people that needed to hear about him, that he would allow me to join him in what he was already doing in the lives of the people that I was going to meet. I was looking forward to it. I was excited about it. I parked the car and got out, and immediately Satan just started wearing me out. He started making me think about my sins and my brokenness and my problems. I started thinking about Jesus and his standard in the Sermon on the Mount and thinking, I am an adulterer. By Jesus' standards, I'm a murderer. I'm a thief. I'm a cheater. I'm a liar. What makes me think that I should be out here? What am I doing? I'm not worthy to minister to anyone. Right? And, and of course, through prayer, God's saying, no, 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 don't listen. That's Satan telling you lies. Don't believe him. And I was just vulnerable with you, very vulnerable. I bore it all for you just then. I hope you appreciated it. Because I want an exchange to happen, I'd like for you to be vulnerable too. And you don't have to say things out loud like me, of course, but I want you to be vulnerable with yourself for a minute. And like I said, I came a long way, so you owe me. I want you to use that imagination again, pull it out, and head back to that street in Galilee. Remember the hot, remember the dust, Remember the smells. But now I want you to add a character to the scene, and that is your own self. Put yourself on that street with those people and with that woman. You could dress yourself in beautiful first century Galilee clothes if you want, or just wear what you got on. I don't care. But put yourself there in the crowd. And now here's the uncomfortable part. I want you to think about the thing that you're ashamed of, that you don't like to think about. The thing that you did, the thing that you think you are, the thing that Satan likes to use to poke at you and tell you, what do you think you are? You don't belong here. You're not like everybody else. They have it together. You got this. Don't forget about this. Yes, you're forgiven, but you're still this. I want you to hold that uncomfortable thing in your brain. The thing that makes you feel unclean, just like that woman. Now, using your imagination, I want you to see Jesus there. He's facing the other direction. But you can get to him if you squeeze and push and find your way through the crowd and reach out with your hand and you touch his cloak. And now he stops and he turns around and he looks at you and he doesn't say, adulterer. Murderer, sinner, liar. He's smiling and he says, There you are, my child. Just 
Enjoy that for a minute. The second thing we can do to apply this passage is to think about who we want to be when this passage comes to life. I know this happened 2,000 years ago, but it's happening again every day in your life and in this church. People are seeking Jesus who are not like us. People are seeking Jesus and they're seeking him from the outside. When people who are on the outside want to come to Jesus, how are we going to respond to that? How are we going to look at them? How are we going to treat them and how are we going to receive them? Are we going to be gyrus Christians? Are we going to be jeerer Christians? Or are we going to be like Jesus? You have a choice. If you're going to be like a gyrus Christian, that's the Christian who has it together. They know the rules. They know what to say, what not to say. They know how to dress. They can turn to the passage quicker than anybody else. They don't have to use the table of contents, of course. right? Even difficult things like Zechariah 5, they can find it just like that. Okay, But they're so busy with what they need from the church and what they need from Jesus that they don't have time for this outsider who doesn't have it together yet. That's the gyrus Christian. You can be like that. Your other choice is to be a little bit, a little bit worse. You could be like the jeerer Christian. This is like the crowd in this section. They're the ones who, they think they have it together, but all they're really thinking about is how messed up the other person is. How their behavior is not right how they are so sinning, how they don't know how this works. They can't be a part of us because they're not like us. They can't be a part of us because they don't think like us. They don't act like us. Maybe when they start thinking like us and acting like us, then they can belong with us, right? Somebody said, I don't know who it was. Somebody said that the church makes a mistake when we tell people who are on the outside that they need to believe, behave, and then they can belong. We've seen it before. Maybe we've been guilty of it before. To be a part of us, you've got to believe like we do. You've got to get your act together and start acting like we do and learn about our culture. And then you can be a part of us. Right? But that's not Jesus, right? Jesus flips it over. For Jesus, belonging comes first. He looks at everyone. He doesn't say, you've got to believe, you've got to behave. He says, get over here. I've been waiting on you. Come get over here, child. You've been lost, but now you're found. You belong here. This is your chair. You stay by me. And then later comes belief, and then later comes behavior. But those are not conditions for acceptance. Acceptance is just the first thing. It's what you lean into. Okay. So I challenge this congregation to be people who make everyone feel like they belong first and then worry about the rest later. I say it to challenge you, but I also say it to commend you. And I think I used all my tears in first service, so I'm going to be a big boy and not cry. But I'm going to tell you what happens when you put this into practice. If you start welcoming people like Jesus, for better or worse, what's going to happen is you're going to have more people like me in this church. Because 20 years ago, I came here and I did not belong. I didn't know what clothes to wear. I had the wrong number of parents. I smelled like cigarettes. 
I didn't know when to stand up in service and when to sit down. I was always a beat behind. People say, turn to Matthew, Genesis. I have to look in the table of contents. Everybody else just flipping, flipping, flipping. I came here one time on Easter. I didn't know it was Easter. I didn't know what Easter was. Everybody had on pastel. I wore gray and black. I was dressed for a funeral, people. I did not know. I did not know. And I felt shame. And I felt like I don't belong. I felt unwelcome, right? Like I must be unwelcome here. I'm not like these folks. Right? But you did it right. You did it right. Because the message that you gave me was, this is your seat. This is your church. This is where you belong. This is where you belong. Come help us operate the camera. Come serve the Lord's Supper. You told me I belonged first. And like Jesus says, you're my daughter. You said you're my son. Now you're stuck with me. So for you, the first thing was to belong. And then belief came later, and I'm still working on behavior. That's a joke. <laughs> anyway, I'm thankful for you. I want to challenge you. I want to commend you. And you're hungry. I want to pray for you. God, thank you very much for... <laughs> thank you very much for your word for including this story in Scripture. Thank you, Jesus, for being compassionate, for being loving, for seeing people no matter where they are and opening your arms to them. Thank you, God, for this woman and her example, and we honor her for her faith and her courage on that day that we can learn from 2,000 years later. I thank you, God, for this church and how it's personally been such a blessing to me, and I pray that it will continue to be an open door, a place with open arms for people for years to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus is here and he's calling. Even if you don't believe in God, he believes in you. Even if you don't believe in God, like it or not, you are his child. Although you may be a lost child, you're his child, like it or not. And he's been working on you since the day you were born. Different people talking to you, different things you read, different things you heard. That's God. He's calling you, calling you, calling you. If you're ready to accept his call and listen and finally give in, well, today's a good day. There are some good people here who would love to welcome you the same way that Jesus always welcomes everyone. If you need any help, come while we sing a song.